some things. This morning, before we begin, I'm going to dismiss the little ones, six to three or whatever the ages they are, to go ahead and go to their class. And then we are going to open in prayer in just a moment. And isn't it good to know, though, in that song that we, we have a Redeemer who is faithful and true, and we know that He is faithful and true because God has given us a word that is faithful and true. And I, you know, I don't know how many of you think about that, um, how, how precious just having a copy of the scriptures are. But if you would do a little research and a little bit of church history, you would find that what you have in your lap this morning is a precious jewel from God. It is a gift that was purchased by the blood of the martyrs. Many men died for translating the scriptures into common English. And we have that gift in front of us this morning to guide us. And it is a gift that we need to never take for granted. And even today, there are many Christians in the countries around us who do not have the gift of the scriptures in front of them this morning. We need to keep that in our hearts and our minds as well as we pray for the persecuted church throughout the world. But let's pray for the church that's here this morning. Let's pray for the church that's here in a time when it's really easy to be a Christian, and yet we don't avail ourselves often of the very graces that God's given us because we tend to think that it's okay, we've done well so far, but we need to be reminded we cannot make another step as a Christian in sanctification and anything else that we do apart from God's grace and His Word and His Spirit. So let's pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would guide us this morning into the Word and feed us and direct us to Christ. Father God, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and we come to you by the power of the Holy Spirit, who has sealed us and called us to be obedient to Christ. And one of the acts of obedience that we want to express this morning is being submitted to your word. Jesus, we want to obey your word, obey your commands, so that we know that we are your children, that we have been adopted by your grace through the work of Christ on the cross. Lord, we pray that you would help shape our hearts and our minds this morning, that we would be able to reflect the glorious gospel that we have received. We would be able to reflect that in our life and our attitudes within the church and as we go out into the world, which is our mission field. We pray, God, that you would wash us this morning and you would guide us and you would direct our minds, not to listen to me, but to listen to you, to listen to your word. As you speak through Peter to us this morning, I pray that you would break our pride. I pray that you would humble us this morning. I pray that you would cause true repentance to be breaking forth in every single Christian in this room as we are confronted this morning with our sin. And we are confronted with what we omit to do oftentimes is to feed as we ought on your word. God, I pray that you would wash us and I know that in your washing you convict us, but you also bring us great joy and peace in the gospel because Christ did what we could never do. And we give you thanks for his righteousness that's imputed to us. We pray that you would be honored today as we study Peter in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can turn to 1 Peter if you're not already there. As we're coming to the, our, continue our study and exposition of Peter, in chapter 2 we're, we're, we're getting ready to take off into kind of a mid-thought and so what we need to do is, is go back a little bit and read in chapter 1 from verse, verse 22 down to verse 3 in chapter 2 and remind ourselves 
of the context of this book, of this message, and prepare our hearts to receive God's instructions through chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But to do that, we need to fill our minds with the context in which this vein of thought is flowing. And so we will begin in verse 22 and read down to verse 3 of chapter 2. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but... The word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if or since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord." Since you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, you need to grow in relation to how it came to you. Grow in relation through the word and how it came by God's grace and his mercy. Peter is telling us this morning how Christians grow in sanctification. He tells us that we grow because basically God has planted his word in us. That's what we see in those previous passages in chapter one. He planted his word in us. And that word causes something to happen to Christians. When it's planted deep in our soul, it causes us to act out on that great grace we've been given in fervent love for one another in the body of Christ. That fervent love leads us to continue to feed on God's word for strength. That's what he's getting at this morning. So my question to you to think about this morning, are you doing that? Are you you realizing you have been given an implanted word in your soul? You've been given life, the seed of the gospel, to give you eternal life so that you could fervently love your brothers and feed on God's Word. Are you doing that? Are you fervently loving and feeding on the Word? And if you are, are you being sanctified by it? Are you being set apart unto God because of that? Let me ask you this question. And this is kind of a, I know the answer already, but is anyone here already sanctified completely? I mean, don't answer that because you're going to be lying if you do, and then therefore you'll prove that you're not sanctified. Because sanctification is a process. It's progressive. And, and what, I, what I think you need to understand, what I need to understand and be reminded of is in this progression of, of sanctification, of our salvation, God wants us to realize that we can't do it on our own. We need to have His resources. He saved us with the gospel, and the gospel is what now is cleansing us and causing us to, to live out our spiritual life in the body and to grow together in love and doctrine. And, and sanctification is a process that we, we grow incrementally at times. It's slow sometimes. Sometimes it's faster than others. But sanctification is a part of our spiritual growth as Christians. God gave us the gospel. He planted it in us and regenerated us. We were born again and so that we would be able to grow in that. Newborns grow. New life grows. That's the idea that's going on here. Spiritual growth takes place where there is spiritual life. But spiritual growth is kind of like physical growth. It doesn't happen overnight, does it? You watch your children, they start out little. 
They get bigger and bigger, and eventually sometimes they outgrow you. That's, that's a healthy child that does that. And a healthy newborn Christian or a born-again person will grow incrementally at times faster than others, but you will be growing continually. Peter knows this. And I want you to understand something about this text. This is not a rebuke. Sometimes when I read this text, people will say, well, you know, verse 1, if I look at commentaries, this is a rebuke of Peter in chapter 2. He's, he's rebuking them because there's something evil going on in the church. No, I, I don't believe he's rebuking. I believe he's exhorting. He's exhorting them to excel because he knows that the things in verse 1 are lying in our flesh. And if we're not exhorted to continually put these things to death, and feed on the Word of God, we're going to have this battle continually in the church. And so we need to be exhorted and encouraged to excel in the truth and apply the doctrine to our life. Because spiritual and physical growth, he tells us here, can be either hindered or cultivated by what we feed ourselves. Peter's telling us that what you feed your soul is going to affect the way you grow as a Christian. Are you feeding the flesh? Are you feeding the desires of the flesh? Are you feeding the desires of your soul on God's Word? Well, to do one, you're going to have to put one to death. You have to realize you have died and your life is now hidden in Christ. Therefore, put to death the deeds of the flesh. In 1 Peter 2, 1-3, through 3, Peter's going to give us three ways, here's your outline, three ways to cultivate spiritual growth. Three ways to cultivate spiritual growth. We cultivate spiritual growth by, number one, remembering what God accomplished. What God accomplished, not what we accomplished. Remember, salvation is monergistic. It's the work of God alone. Sanctification is synergistic. It's us working in cooperation with what God has already done to us in saving us. We have to be active in this. But to cultivate spiritual growth, we can't get the cart before the horse. We can't think that it's something we do that makes us grow. We have to realize it's something God has accomplished that causes us to desire spiritual growth. So we have to remember what God has accomplished. Number two, to cultivate spiritual growth, we need to remove what hinders holiness. Remove what hinders holiness. And number three, we need to realize our neediness. Realize our neediness. So to cultivate spiritual growth, we need to remember what God accomplished, remove what hinders holiness, and realize our neediness. A simple outline. I think it derives from the text, and I hope that it would encourage you to dig deeper into the text this morning. First, we want to look at what cultivates spiritual growth. Remembering what God has accomplished. And what he's going to do here in this first verse, he's going to take us back into those previous passages to see the source of of our growth comes from our new birth, our adoption. And that was accomplished by God's sovereign grace. We didn't add anything to this. We didn't come to God pleasing Him. We came to God as enemies, sinners. But God came to us in the person and work of Christ to redeem us by His sovereign love. So this first passage here, as we begin to look at it, He's telling us, remember what God accomplished. He gave us new life. That's why the therefore is therefore. That's what it's there for, okay? The word therefore is very important in this. It's pointing us back into the previous text, those verses 22 down to 25. Look at at verse 1 there of chapter 2. He begins by saying, therefore, put aside all these things. He gives us this whole list of sins. 
sins in the flesh, sins in the body. And he's, he's saying that remember, therefore, what God had already accomplished. He's reminding them to remember they were born again through the proclamation of the gospel. That was the seed that was preached to them. That's how he ends verse 25 there in chapter 1. This is the word. He's speaking of the gospel. This is the word that was preached to you. This was planted in your soul and made to take root by God's sovereign grace. Remember that. Therefore, since you have been born again by the regenerating grace of God, here's what you do. So again, the command that's given comes after the grace that's been received. Grace comes, obedience follows. He's telling the readers here by saying, therefore, he's saying, look, look at what God, remember what God did through the proclaimed message of the gospel. Look what God did in the proclamation of Jesus Christ. He regenerated us. He regenerated us through the gospel by causing us to have our eyes and our hearts made alive and new and open to see the glory of Jesus. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Or hearing faithful words of Christ. We are regenerated by God's grace through faith. Regeneration comes through faith or assurance or we could say reliance on the finished work of Jesus. That's how you receive salvation. It's through faith in the accomplished work of Jesus that you are saved by grace through faith. In Christ. That's what moves us. Now into verse 1. To obedience. Peter goes further and says. You want to cultivate spiritual growth. Then number 2. You need to remove what hinders holiness. You need to remove what hinders holiness. If if you have new life in you. And it's the life that God has implanted in you. In, in your heart. He's regenerated. That word born again. In the previous passages. Means to regenerate. He's given you a new heart. Take away the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. If you have that new heart in you, if you have that new life in you, it's going to produce new desires in you. Desires is the key word, not perfection. Okay? Desires motivated by grace. But they're real desires. And you really do move away from sin. There is no excuse of living in sin for the Christian. Matter of fact, there is no excuse for saying that sin has any power over you as a Christian because Christ died to remove the slavery of sin and you are now a slave of Christ. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey His commands from the heart. Obedience flows out of a thankful heart for the gospel that's been granted to you by God's grace. So, verse two or chapter 2, verse 1, we are commanded by God to do something. Now, understand this. He's not saying this is passive. This is, you know, uh, if, if you're going to grow, you, you just sit back and, you know, let go and let God. That's not what he's saying. There's nothing passive in the Christian life here except salvation itself, regeneration. It was the work of God, but after that, he says he's calling you to do something. As a Christian, you're responsible to do something. And what is it here, he says? In verse two or verse 1, he says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. He's telling us to do something. Put aside something. And this word put aside actually means to remove sin that would hinder our fellowship with God and with others. One of the things that I was realizing as I was studying through this text this week is I used to come to 
Timothy or to any any New Testament epistle and Peter included and even James. And I used to read those texts and think it's about me and my walk with Jesus. And I began to realize something after reading through Peter here. It's more than me and my walk with Jesus. It's me and my walk with Jesus with the covenant community, the church. This text is not about you as an individual Christian just getting your life straight. It's your responsibility as a part of the body, the living stones being built up together on Christ, the cornerstone, living as a community, living as the church. Understand this, everything in your life as an individual Christian affects the corporate body. That's what Peter's getting at here. You do this out of fervent love for the brothers. You set these things aside. This word set aside or put aside refers to stripping off soiled garments. Stripping off soiled garments. Let me give you an illustration in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. In verse 22. Here's an example of putting off or putting aside sin. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. Notice, you lay aside one thing, but that's not all there is in Christianity. It's not just a bunch of don't do these things. It's don't do these, but do this instead. Put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. See that? You lay aside one, you do the other. Speak truth, each one of you, to his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Why do you do it? Because we are members. We are a body. It is good for the entire body. We've got to escape this ideology of American individuality. In the church, it has no place. It's not a New Testament teaching. We are part of a corporate body, the body of Jesus. We are called to be responsible to not only ourselves before God, but for one another. We are to consider our brothers as more important than ourselves. So lay aside sin. Speak truth. Verse 26, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let sun go down, the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Then he gets really practical, guys. Look what he says. Let, us, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification or building up according to to the need of the moment, so that it it will give grace to those who hear. And if you don't do these things, look what it results in. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. If you don't put away sin and pick up righteousness that you've been given by God in Christ through the Spirit, you will grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away, put aside. From you, along with all malice. And instead, what's he say to do? Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving each other. And notice how he ends this. Forgive each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's big. That's big. How did Christ forgive me? Was I lovely? Did I please him? Was I always perfect before him? No, I was an enemy of God. Rebellious defiled, 
But God, in His great mercy, He loved us. And He sent His Son to die for us. And He forgave us our sins, not based on what we did, but on the work of His Son. He has accepted us. Therefore, we are to accept one another, forgive one another, grow in grace together with one another, and put aside sin, put aside things that hinder our fellowship with one another and with God. That word back in Peter, go back to Peter with me. In Peter, where that word that says put aside, it's, it's a Greek, there's a Greek meaning to that. Basically means this. It's very heavy, it's very emphatic. It means to put aside and never pick it up again. Put it aside and never pick it up again. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration of that. How you should do that. How that should look. What that should be like. Your sins before God are defiled. A defiled stench comes into His nostrils. Why would we want to live in that? Why would we want to carry that on our backs? Why would we want to walk in that when we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ? We wouldn't. We don't want to walk in that. When I, when I used to work for a city, the city of Juanette, I was called to do some really odd jobs. And one of the jobs that I was given was one day they asked me to go clean out a sewer main. And to do that, you had to crawl down into the sewer main, which is a large kind of a cave-like area, and there's these big chutes that go down different directions out of town. And they were such a high-tech small town of 200 people, they didn't have any tools to clean that sewer line out with, so they had a fire truck with a big hose. And you run that hose into that tube, and you run it way down there, way down there, as far as you can. You get out, they crank on the, the water, and it blows out the line. And sadly, the men that I was working with were depraved sinners. And so when I climbed into the hole, and I ran the tube inside there just about five feet, they thought it would be funny to turn the hose on while I was still there. And they did. I was covered, quite literally, with every defiled thing that you can imagine. And you can imagine a lot. I was covered from head to toe. I was angry. I was needing to grow in sanctification tremendously at that point. I came out of that hole. I went straight to my house, which is about two blocks from there. I went straight to my backyard, and I stripped my clothes off. Piled them up, went in the back door. Took about 10 showers with bleach. And then I went back out the next day and looked at those clothes and thought, hey, I think I'll put them back on and go to work today. That's not what I did. I burned those clothes right where they stood. I wasn't going to touch them. So why should we walk in that kind of defilement as Christians? Shouldn't we want that same kind of separation from our past? Christ came to break the slavery from sin break the bondage from sin from us. Set us free to walk in obedience. We're free to obey Jesus, not walk in defilement. That makes no sense at all. It would make as much sense as me picking up those clothes and putting them back on and coming to church in them. It would defile me. It would defile everything I touch. So he's telling us, put these things away. Put these things away because Jesus... Because Jesus came and was defiled for you. Jesus came and He had your sins put upon Him on the cross. He paid the penalty. He took away the slavery that you were bound to by dying in your place and setting you free to walk in obedience. The Gospel is what moves us 
to action against our sin, to remove ourselves from sin. Look at Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Again, the gospel is the motivating factor for sanctification and spiritual growth. You cannot grow spiritually if you're trying to basically trying to achieve what only the Spirit can do by the power of the flesh. You have to recognize what God has already done. And as you recognize and remember the grace of our God, you want to run from the things that cost Jesus His life on the cross. And so you want to be raised up in your thinking and your actions where Christ is. So sanctification is the process that God does in a thankful heart for the gospel. Colossians 3.1 Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your defiled life is hidden. It's covered with the righteousness of Jesus. And the Father sees you in that righteous condition because of His Son's sacrifice. Why would we want to pick up what defiled our Savior? And walk in that. He's telling us, no, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry or self-love. For it is because of these things the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. He's not calling them the sons of disobedience. He's saying, The sons of disobedience will be marked by this, but you're not a son of disobedience. You're a son of God. But now, you also, verse 8 says, put them all aside. Put them off, never to pick them up again. Put aside anger. You can do that now because the Spirit of God has given you freedom in Christ to obey the Word. Put aside anger. Put aside wrath. Put aside malice. Put aside slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed. Now notice that it's a process. You are being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. Again, the gospel is what is moving Paul to write this this command to put aside sin out of a thankfulness for what Jesus has accomplished. Put aside the things that cost him his life on the cross. Don't walk in these any longer. God's commanding Paul and Peter and us to put aside desires that hinder our hunger for God's word and fellowship with God. Now, as I was reading this, go ahead and turn back to 1 Peter 2. As I was reading this, this this week, I was thinking about the context historically. And I'm reading through this. Again, you've got to separate yourself a little bit from this American ideology of Christianity and get back and understand the the context in which this hermeneutic is giving, this this understanding of the Scripture is giving. He's showing us what's going on in, in, in the church here that he's preaching to, these scattered out aliens in these different churches in these different cities of Cappadocia and Galatia and Asia and all these different areas. And he's speaking to them about putting aside the old flesh and and loving fervently one another. And he's talking about how to long for the Word of God. You need to be longing for it, craving it like a baby craves milk. That all sounds really good when you can sit in here today with one of these in your lap. 
And I begin to think about it. Peter, they don't have Bibles. What are you saying to them? How could God possibly give a command like this to people who don't even have a Bible, a copy of the printed Bible? And these people are having to travel so many long long distances just to come to hear the preaching of the Word. How, how could He possibly be commanding this to them? Well, He's commanding it to them because this is what they need. And they will not be satisfied with anything less. Because He knows in the new heart of a Christian there is a desire for fellowship with God and fellowship with Christians. So what I think you need to understand as we read this text is the context. He is saying here in this context, in this command of verses 1 through 3, he's saying to Christians in this church, in this situation, now here it is a little different here today because we can go home and have a Bible. But he's saying to them, if you're going to do all this, that means you're going to have to come together often and regularly. If you're you're being commanded to, to, to have the Word of God like a newborn baby, but you don't have a copy of the Bible, you're going to have to go someplace where it's being preached. So he's calling for the church to come together often. And there's a need for that because they're hungry and they're longing. And listen, it wasn't easy because, listen, these people were traveling in the heat and across areas that would be difficult and they came in with cranky little kids. They came in with sweat-covered brows, aching feet, dirty, smelly. But they were willing to sacrifice everything to put aside sin and to have the Word of God wash over them. And so I think it's important that we understand when he's saying, put aside all these things, he's realizing that when the people show up for Lord's, the Lord's Day, they're not all in the best of moods. They're not all lovely and cleaned up with their nice Sunday go-to-meeting church clothes. They're coming in from this gritty world wanting to be washed in the Word. And he knows it's going to be difficult at times. And I think we need to remember this. I think this is a lesson here, just aside from the text, is, is that we live in such a time of convenience, we forget about the necessity of the covenant community and the Word of God and, and the need to study it and to long for it as if, as if I came to your house and took away all your Bibles and told you you couldn't have them for six months. You need to long for it. You need to fight me over that. You need to have that kind of desire. We, we live in a time when it's so easy to to throw on the iPod a couple of devotionals and call that study or to, to show up and, and have coffee with somebody and call that fellowship. That is not what, what the church was, was talking, being commanded to do here. They're talking about coming in and working together in love to put aside differences that are, that are keeping us from fellowshipping and being effective in this world and longing for the Word at all costs, even long distances. Listen, we, we have cars. We can drive 40 miles in less than an hour for fellowship, and we don't. Now, I'm not rebuking you. I'm, not trying, to, I'm trying to exhort you too, okay? I'm not talking about you necessarily. I'm just saying it's easy for us. We need to remember that if we have this passion, we have this desire to grow in godliness, we need the Word of God in us, and we need the people of God with us. We're not separated from these two. These are part and parcel of who we are as the living stones. The reason I'm saying that is that's where Peter's going in chapter 2. He's talking about the covenant community of God, the people of God, growing together. And and that's the context in which he's given this. And if if anybody could have had a pass on not coming and fellowshipping, it would have been this church. It would have been easy for them to say, well, it's too hard to go on Sundays and and midweek and 
wherever, because we've got to go across this river, and I've got to drag 17 kids with me, and I've got, because it's got both extended families with me when I'm coming, and it's going to be hard because we don't have a Bible, so we'll have to actually sit and listen to the guy preach and read for hours. It's going to take away time. But God knows the hearts of the Christians that he's writing to, and the Christians today will do whatever it takes to be fed the Word of God and to be encouraged to work in relation to what God has done through us in the gospel. He knows our neediness. He knows our frame. He knows that if he has planted his word in us, that it will nourish us and it will drive us to fellowship in the word with others. It's the incentive. Legalism cannot make you come to church on Sunday. I can't guilt you. I'm not trying to guilt anybody into coming here. What I'm trying to do is this. As a Christian, I'm trying to say, if you love Jesus and you know what he's done for you, you'll respond in putting aside differences maybe that you're having with one another and, and loving one another in spite of those things and working together in love to look at the gospel and how it will change you. And the way you do that is you come together in the body and you labor and you are accountable to one another and you open up to one another and say, I need help. I'm broken. I need the gospel. Brother, please talk to me about Jesus today. Remind me of what he's done. That's why you're here this morning. Not legalistic reasons. You're not getting points with God or with me by being here. You're coming in response to what God has done for you, I pray. But you're going to find times in your life that you don't do that. You're going to find times in your life that it's difficult to come into fellowship. It's difficult to read the Word. And as you look at this text this morning, I hope that it would would encourage you to examine yourself. If you're letting some of these things reign in your life, these things that he lists in this this list in verse 1, if, if these things are reigning in your life, I, I pray that you will examine your heart this morning and say, you know what? By the grace of God, through the gospel of Christ, I can put these things aside and I can come into the covenant community of God and I can say, I need help. I need strength. I need correction. I need accountability. Again, there is no place to hide in the church. It's a place to open up. Remember, the requirements to be here is you have to confess that you are a sinner in need of grace. So go back with me to Peter. That was my soapbox. We're going to move on. In 2.1, Peter begins his exhortation, and he gives, again, a command to remove whatever hinders growth. He's going to say, put aside, basically put aside this, put aside attitudes that reflect something that was the staple of your life before you were saved. Put aside attitudes that reflect the feudal ways of your forefathers. Remember, you have a new dad now. You have a new family now. You're called brothers and you have a father who is a heavenly father who is holy. He's saying you were redeemed from the feudal ways of your forefathers. Now you have been brought into the family of God. You need to put away sins that will hurt your family. He's getting at some familial terms in this text. He's talking about putting away sins that hurt your brothers and sisters. Sins that are based on selfishness and self-exaltation. Those things need to be put away from the, the body of Christ. He's saying here basically what Paul says in Philippians when he says, consider others as more important than yourself. And who does he give the illustration of that did that perfectly? The Lord Jesus. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we would be saved. So he's calling us as Christians. Consider your fellow Christians starting in your family first. Wives, children, husbands. Okay? Consider each one of those as more important than your own needs. Consider their needs as more important than yours. That comes into the covenant community, comes into the corporate gathering. 
That comes into the world at that point because as we do that, we are effectual in this world because the world sees grace moving us, building us, drawing us together. Put aside things like this. He's going to give a list of things that we need to put aside that are relational sins. These are relational sins that have to be put aside in the family of God. That's the context. The relational sins that have to be laid down, never picked up again. One is, is here's the reason. If Jesus died for those for you as a Christian, why would I come along and, and actually try to accuse you of these things? Why would I come along and actually say that, you know, if he's forgiven you, I'm going to hold things against you. I can't do that. I need, to, I need to recognize you have been forgiven, and I need to recognize you're not perfect yet, and you need grace and strength, and I'm here to help you. You're here to help me. So we need to learn to put these things away from ourselves because these aren't the marks of a child of God. These are the marks of our feudal forefathers. He says, put aside all malice. Verse 1, all malice. Now, three of these things, he actually puts the word all in front of. It's all-encompassing. Okay, every aspect of malice, put it away. And actually, every point that he makes here is all-encompassing. He just kind of wedges a couple in between. But he says, all malice. Malice is simply this. Malice is wickedness. Depravity. This is the thing that was the mark of your life before you were regenerated. This is what drove you, your desires, and everything you did. And, and malice actually shows itself as a desire to hurt other people. That's how it shows itself. Now, that doesn't mean walking up and slapping somebody in the face, necessarily. It could mean that. But here in the context, it talks about a desire to hurt people with words, with actions, with vileness motiv motivating, with self-exaltation motivating your actions. And the word malice is actually a blanket statement. That word malice, Peter could have actually wrote, put aside malice, and like newborn babies long for the milk of the word. But he doesn't because he wants to detail this flesh it out a little bit. Malice could encompass every one of these other issues. Every one of these other points are covered under malice, hurting others with words or deeds. But instead, Peter knows he's dealing with people who have indwelling sin, the flesh. And he wants you to know and wants me to know, these are the things that hurt the covenant community of God. And I'm going to break them down into little bitty pieces so you can see you can't escape these. You're probably guilty of at least one. This morning, you're probably guilty. And so we need to recognize our ugliness and God's graciousness that brought us into the kingdom and how that, that should drive us in fellowship to put aside these things that God has dealt with once and for all. And then we should love one another in the church. He says, put aside all deceit. Peter would have been familiar with the word deceit. It actually meant to bait a hook. As a fisherman, as one who understood how fish think, he, he would think about fish traps. He would think about traps. He says, put away anything that would trap people. It's, it's basically deceit is a desire to gain advantage by deceiving. Deceit is lying or omitting the truth. It's not always lying. It can be omitting the truth. Like you could say everything but this and you could just kind of lead them on. Deception also comes in the form of flattery or false promises. And, and again, what drives all those motives is ultimately the desire to have self-exalted. I'm going to deceive you to get a better advantage for myself. That's what's going on. What Peter's really getting at in the heart of all these is you need to die to self. And the only way you're going to die to self and grow in godliness is to 
Put these things away and pick up the word. Put aside hypocrisy. I think we know what hypocrisy is. It's pretending. It's a desire to appear outwardly what you're not internally. So that you could, again, make other people feel less holy than you because you look more holy than them. It's an outward pretending. It's a, it's a pretension. It's a fraud. It's a self-promotion without any internal transformation. It's trying to look good outwardly to make other people feel bad and look bad around you. And this is one that is plaguing the church. I'm not saying, talking about sovereign grace here, but I'm just talking about in general. People come in and they want to appear as if their life is all together and that it's so much better than yours because they're walking so much better than you. Because look, they look that way. Or maybe they have better stuff than you, so God must be blessing them. Well, no, it, it begins in the inside of the heart. Jesus referred to people who were hypocrites as men who were like tombs. They looked good on the outside, but the inside they were full of decay and worms and death. So put that aside. There's no room for hypocrisy in the church. You're all sinners. The reason you're saved is because you defiled God's grace. You defiled God's glory. You defiled God's word. You have sinned against a holy God. So we have no room for pretending that we're better than that. We need grace. We need His mercy. We need His forgiveness. So don't pretend otherwise. We have to put that aside. Now put aside also, he says, envy. Which describes, this is, envy is a weird word, okay? Because everybody tries to define envy. envy think, people think of envy as jealousy. Simply, I wish I had what Jacob had. No, it's not just that. It's, I wish Jacob didn't have what Jacob has. That's envy. I wish that I'm, it actually means to be miserable over somebody else doing well or having more than you. And so you want to take it from them. That's, that's envious. That would be like this. That would be like somebody getting up and doing something in the church, and they do it better than you. And you go, hmm, I wish they would have failed. I wish they would have messed up. Then I could have shown them how it was done. That's envy. Put that aside. Put aside slander, all slander. And a slander is the desire to slander a person so you can gain advantage over them. And slander comes in all kinds of subtle forms. It's very dangerous, very deceptive. Slander, we, the, the easiest form to see is gossip, right? That, you know, people come around saying, hey, did you know that so-and-so did this and so-and-so did that? And they really only did part of that, but you kind of slander it. You, you, you slant it toward your advantage to make them look bad. That's one way of doing it. But there's other ways of slandering people. Like when somebody comes in and says, so I, I hear that uh, so-and-so is doing well in the church. And you kind of raise your eyebrows like, hmm. Oh no, that's slander. You're, you're, you're putting doubt. You're, you're defaming the character of another person without even saying anything. It's very subtle. Slander can be the twisting of the facts about another person. And the word slander here is a very interesting Greek word. I can't even pronounce it, but it's something like katatelias. And we get the word that we are familiar with with our children, tattletales. It sounds like the word tattletales. Your tattletales. And tattletales aren't reporting something that's happened in front of the person. Tattletales are sneaking around behind the person's back and trying to get the other person in trouble. That's a slanderous person. That's what slander does. Again, it's trying to, to seek advantage to make yourself look better than the other people. So you slip behind their back and you talk about them so that everybody will think you're the good one and they're the bad one. That's slanderous. Now, 
as I was thinking about these things, I was thinking, okay, these are sins in the body. These are sins, spiritual sins, I guess you could say, in the body, in the spiritual body. And, and I begin to think, what would these look like over the long term? They would look a lot like the church at Corinth. That's what they would look like. But it's kind of like this. If, if you're feeding this in the church, it's kind of like you, if you're feeding this in your life, rather, it's kind of like you taking into your physical body on a daily basis, on a constant basis, everything deep fried and soaking it down with alcohol to follow. If you did that consistently over a long period of time, I can tell you something. Though we couldn't see it outwardly at first, Inwardly, it's going to destroy you, and eventually, it's going to destroy what looks what you look like externally as well. And if these sins like this are breeding in the church, you may not see them on the surface, but internally, this is what they're producing, decay that will affect and infect every other part of the body. Again, our individual lives are connected to the body of Christ. It's very important what we do individually, lest we become stunted because we're not repenting of sin daily. We need to repent. We are repenters. And and if we don't, we're going to end up like the church at Corinth. Look over quickly at 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, 1. I don't know if you know much about the church at Corinth, but they were a carnal group of people. They lived in carnality. And they were not the pattern that you would want to follow. They did all kinds of sad, sad things. They exalted sin. They looked over sin. They exalted self. They exalted their gifts. But here they even did things like trying to exalt men. It says, verse 1, I, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. He says, I, can't, I wish I could come to you as if you were really mature, but I've got to come to you but like a bunch of babies. Because here's why you're, what you're doing. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? He's saying, I can't, I can't speak to you about spiritual things because you're like a little toddler. You're walking around like an infant and throwing the kind of infantile tantrums that a child would have. You're following after people idolatrously. He says, for one, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not, are we, are you not mere men? And what then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each. I planted, Apollos watered, God was causing the growth. So then, Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. I mean, isn't it amazing? The Apostle Paul, who could have said, I am the apostle. I am the man. He says, I'm a fellow worker. Why are you exalting me? We're all part of this body, this building growing up together. But because of your your sin, because of your selfishness, because of your lack of maturity, you're stunted. You're like children. You need to grow up. So to prevent that, we have Peter. Peter telling us, put aside these things so we will grow up. Peter is pastorally warning us. He's exhorting us to check our attitudes and repent of sin. 
If we excuse relational sins in our church, in our lives, we'll never grow spiritually as we should. Unrepented sin chokes out our hunger for God's Word. That's what happens. If you have unrepented sin in your life, you're never going to grow in God's Word because God's Word is going to confront you. So you're going to avoid God's Word, and then eventually you're going to be discouraged, and eventually you're going to disengage from the church. I'm not saying you lost your salvation. I'm just saying the pattern of sin will be what leads you away from the church and the Word. God doesn't want that. He wants us to be brought together, to be nourished, not alone, but together in the covenant community. What you do is when you, when you entertain sin, the sins that Paul or that Peter talks about, when you entertain these sin, sins in your life, it leaves you with no appetite for the truth. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, you know, if, if, Sherry, if, if Sherry told me, she called me, and she, she said, Randy, I, I'm making your favorite meal tonight. Your favorite meal tonight with everything. And you can have as much as you want. No diet restrictions tonight. It's all yours. And I said, man, Sherry, that sounds wonderful. So I jump in the car and I drive down to McDonald's. And I buy four Big Macs, two fries, and a Coke. And I drink that on the way home. No matter how good that food is at home, I won't have an appetite for it because I've filled up my body with garbage, with junk. It may have filled me up, but it didn't nurture me. It didn't strengthen me. It didn't give me health. And I can look at a great bounty of food in front of me, but I cannot pick it up because I am bloated on the world. So we need to put away sin so we can have a hunger. See, that's the progression that he's going through here in Peter. He's saying, first, put away sin or you're never going to have an appetite for truth. You're filling up the desires of your flesh. How are you going to fill up your soul on the truth? Put it away. Cultivate spiritual growth. Number three, by realizing you're needy. Realize your neediness. The list in verse 1 shows you you're needy, right? If he's having to tell Christians, put all these sins away, that's pretty obvious. He's dealing with people who need sanctifying grace. Put away. Cultivate spiritual growth by recognizing your weakness, repenting and turning from it to God's word for strength. Realize your neediness. Newborns need nourishment. Look at verse 2. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now, understand first of all, this text isn't talking about new Christians primarily. It's talking about Christians, all Christians. All Christians need to realize their neediness and their need of God's word for nourishment. This is what he's saying. Everyone needs this. But here's the comparison he's making is he's saying he's telling us that Christians need God's word like newborns need milk for life. Newborns need life sustaining milk. It's needed. A mother's milk is required. If they're going to grow healthy, if they're going to be satisfied. When you have a child, a newborn baby, the first thing they want to do is be fed. And without being fed, they die. Matter of fact, you could take a soda and give it to a newborn baby to drink, and it might take it in, but it's not going to nurture it, it's not going to strengthen it, and it will probably kill it if you do not give it nourishment. He's saying for the Christian, 
we should be like those newborn babies. He's not calling us newborns. He's not saying that the word of God, we have to start out with milk and work our way up to meat. He's just saying you need to have a desire for the word of God in general. Like a newborn wants milk so that it would be satisfied and it would be nourished. Newborns long for milk. And that's the illustration here. We should be intensely longing for milk, the milk of the word. And just think about this as the train passes by. Are you craving the milk of the word? Are you craving God's word? Are you longing for it like a newborn baby longs for milk? And the way you know that you're craving for it like a newborn craves for milk is you can't live without it. You want it day and night. Christians are addicted to the Bible. That is the mark of a Christian. And and that, that addiction comes out of a heart of thanksgiving because God has opened our eyes through the gospel, the message, and therefore that message transforms our hearts and our actions, and we want to know more about Jesus, more about God, more about grace, more about how we can share this with others. So we go to God's word. And so if you if you say yes that you are craving it, here's how I can tell you there's evidence of that. You'll be applying it. You'll be putting away those sins in the body. You'll be serving in the body. You'll be reaching out to the world. And if you say you're craving the Word and you're reading the Word and it's just for academic studies, that's not going to cut it. That's not what God's talking about. This is life-sustaining so you can apply it. You are given the Word planted in you to take it out and give it to others. To live it out. Yes, there's academic study of it. But that academia is supposed to lead you deeper in your love for Jesus. If it's not a love for Jesus that drives your study, then it's vain. If you're not studying and worshiping out of love for Jesus, you're just filling up your head with knowledge and it makes you proud. You need to repent. I need to repent of that. I do that a lot. Sometimes I begin to get on a tangent and think I'm going to figure this out theological point out and i've begun to forget what should be driving that is a love for jesus and a desire to share this with others not defeat an enemy the enemy's been defeated by christ i need to know more about my savior and i need to worship him in his word i need to crave and again this word crave or longing has to do with the word addiction it really does it has to do with not being satisfied with anything else other than the pure Word of God. Nothing else will satisfy a Christian. You can't add anything to make it better, and you can't take anything away from it, or we won't be satisfied. We want the Word, and the Word is pure. The Word is nourishing. It gives life at regeneration. It gives direction. It gives guidance. It gives strength at sanctification. As you grow deeper in it, you respond to it. Your life is filled up with it. And what Peter is getting at here, he says in verse 2, long for the pure milk of the word. He calls it pure because in Peter's day, people would sell things in the marketplace like wine and milk, and they would water it down. It would weaken its effect. It would not bring as much nourishment. And he says, the Bible's not like that. It is strong. It is pure. It is unadulterated. It will give you life at regeneration, and it will give you strength for sanctification. It'll push you forward. It's not diluted. I hate diluted things. I hate diluted coffee and I hate diluted milk. 1% and 2%. No, I want milk. (laughs) I want milk. 
I want coffee. I want it black. I want God's word, and I want it strong, and I want it firm, and I want it constantly. I need it. Because I, like Peter, waffle. I waver. God's word never wavers. So when I waver, I come back and I see in the gospel that Jesus never wavered. My hope is in him. My righteousness is his. I'm trusting in his righteousness alone. Look at verse 2b, the second part of there. He tells us we need to feed daily on the word so it will nourish us and strengthen us. He tells us why it's important. This is, this is our strength. This is what gives us the, the, the growth that we need. He says, you, you feed on the pure word so that by it, whether it's read or preached, you may grow in respect to salvation. The goal of our growth is to be made and conformed to the image of Christ, being set apart unto God, Christ-likeness. And that happens first internally, when you know that you have been born again by God's sovereign mercy and grace. And you respond to that. And you respond in a desire to walk in obedience and a desire to be fed by His Word. Listen, the pure milk of God's Word causes you to grow in holiness and it makes you avoid legalism as your means of sanctification. The more you know about the Gospel, the holier you will be and the more rejoicing you will be and the least legalistic you will be. Because in the Gospel, you're constantly reminded that you brought nothing but sin to the table and God brought grace and mercy. How can I perfect myself in the flesh for what He did in the Spirit? And so I'm submitted at the cross every time I come to it to say, I can't perfect myself on my own. I need grace. I need mercy. I need Him. The Gospel is what keeps us motivated in our sanctification. We can't do anything to add to it. We can't do anything to take away from it. We submit to it and we're humbled by it. And we're moved to thankful obedience. Listen, obedience, again, putting aside all these sins, is the response to a thankful heart that's been regenerated by God's grace. That's what he goes on to say in verse 3. Look at verse 3. He says, basically, we move toward our holiness. We move toward holiness out of a thankfulness for what God has done. Because he says in verse 3, if you have tasted of the kindness of God, you will long for the milk of the word, okay? You will grow in respect to salvation. And that word if there is used basically to introduce a reason, not a question. So it could be translated, since you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord. Or now that you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord. You need to grow in respect to that. Since you have been re regenerated, since you remember what God has done, since you see the work of the Spirit in your life, since you are now picking up the Word, grow in respect to His grace. Grow in respect to your thankful heart for what He's accomplished on the cross in your place. The kindness of God is what you tasted. It's what you tasted when God's Word was planted in you that He talked about in chapter 1. That Word was planted in you through the proclamation of the Gospel when He regenerated your soul. And, and that's what causes you to respond with obedience today. You respond to the revelation of God's grace in the sanctifying work of Christ. And the work that He did to set Himself apart to be our sacrifice, our substitute. You respond to that and it satisfies your soul. that You can walk now with the Savior. That He has forgiven you. He took your place. He's your Redeemer. And it causes you to grow in sanctification. Sanctification is what follows the rejoicing Christian. As you have joy inexpressible, full of glory for what God has done before the foundation of the world. 
and accomplished in time at the cross of Calvary. You just run hard after the cross and obedience follows. Sins put aside. We, we shed those things off. We don't want to pick them up anymore. We have tasted the kindness of God in the gospel. We've experienced his love. We experience his love and we taste him when we ponder the work on the cross of Christ. And when you ponder that work, it moves you and removes things from you. It moves you away from malice and sin. And it moves you closer to God in Christ through his gospel message. So you have a deeper desire for the word. You long for it. You crave it. You desire it. It sustains you. It saved you. You want it daily. That's my exhortation to you today. Are you craving it? I want you to crave it. I want you to love it. And I want you to see the evidence of that by you putting aside sin in the body. Individually and corporately coming together to be fed and encouraged. So that we can grow as living stones built on the cornerstone of Christ Jesus, the rock. He is our foundation. And we are to be built up into a spiritual house that brings him glory. If we have tasted of the kindness of God in the gospel. That's what he's telling us. The same word that brought us salvation is the same word that grows in the heart of the child of God and produces sanctification, produces fruit of the Spirit in our life and in the church. Go go with me to Galatians 5. Galatians 5. Galatians 5.22. Understand this. The Galatian Christians were trying to perfect in the their flesh, what the Spirit had already accomplished. Peter rebukes them of that. And he begins to tell them about what the Holy Spirit will produce in the Christian, what will come out of the Christian's life. And it's interesting to me that this is not deeper knowledge. It's the evidence of the gospel. A thankful heart for what Christ has accomplished produces fruit that feeds others. Check this out. All that fruit, all that fruit is to feed the body. Fellow Christians, it's not about feeding yourself. Your spiritual gifts are not about you exalting your gift. It's about serving others in the body. That's what this says. The fruit of the Spirit, and by the way, it's not plural, it's singular, right? The fruit is this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those things have to be applied toward others. Okay, those aren't inward. Those are outward. Those are fruits that go out. Love goes out. Joy goes out. Peace goes out. Patience goes out. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. He's telling them, don't fall back into that pattern. You have been saved. Now, don't do these things. In verse 1 of chapter 6. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Again, it's the gospel. The gospel of what Christ has done in forgiving us His mercy toward us causes us to be gentle toward those who are failing and falling around us. Causes us to be sensitive to those around us in the body and want to pick them up. We don't stomp them down when they're hurting. 
When Christians fall, Christians surround that man or woman and they pick them up and they carry them until they are able to walk again by God's grace. And we do that by feeding them the word, by encouraging them in the gospel. Again, you don't outgrow this message of God's forgiveness in Christ. It is what saves you. It's what secures you. It's what sanctifies you as you walk in life. And as you fail, if you try to fix yourself, you're going to fall into legalism. If you try to do what only the Spirit can accomplish, you're going to give up and be discouraged and disengaged. But if you recognize your inability, your neediness for God's Word and God's people, then you will fall on your face and say, thank you for mercy. Though I can't do it, you have made promises to me in the Gospel that when I am weak, you are strong. And when I fall down, your people will pick me up and carry me. We need the church and we need the Word. We need to grow in these things if we have tasted of the kindness of God. If you have tasted of the kindness of God in the Gospel, your life will be marked by a desire to feed on the pure milk of the Word constantly. If you've tasted of the kindness of God in the Gospel, your, your desire to put aside sin will be continual. You'll be continually setting aside sin. Because those are the marks of a healthy Christian. That's the marks of a healthy church. There are no perfect Christians. There are no perfect churches. There are forgiven Christians. There are forgiven churches who are walking by grace, not by the law. We're walking in grace, which helps us to exceed even the commands of the law. We can go further than the limitations. We can move out and we can now pursue those who have fallen with grace in our hearts out of thankfulness for what Christ has accomplished. We can put aside relational sins in the body. Isn't it great to know as Christians that none of us have more advantage over others? We are all equally before God on the same ground as sinners. So there is no room for us to boast in our gifts. There is no room for us to boast in what we have received as if we have not received it. We have received everything by the hand of God as beggars. So when we come before other Christians and we see them struggling, we have no place to say, oh, why can't they seem to get that? I got that. What's wrong with that guy? No, our place is to say, that guy needs the gospel and I happen to actually believe it will change his life. Therefore, I'm going to humble myself and serve my brother in need. I'm going to reach out to him. I'm not better than him. I need the gospel. You need the gospel. We need it daily. And if we put those things aside, those relational sins aside, and we feed on the word, this body, sovereign grace, will grow into a spiritual house. And the spiritual house of God will actually grow outward and reach out to this community, reach out to this world. And we'll be able to offer them something that will change them and sustain them and nourish them. Not gimmicks. Not programs, but a message. A pure message from God in His Word. That's what the church needs. We've been given a message. We just need to make it available to others. We need to live in it. We need to walk in it. We need to be thankful for it. Peter tells us we need to long for it. Look back one more time. We're going to read it and we're going to end with prayer. 1 Peter 2, 1-3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us, you've given us your word to feed us, sustain us, exhort us, rebuke us, correct us, convict us, drive us to the cross with thankfulness, knowing that this is where we gain our strength. This is where we gain progress and growth in our sanctification, not by doing things in the flesh, but by seeing that what our sin accomplished in the flesh brought our Savior death, and that He covered us. He covered us with His righteousness so that we would live together as forgiven sinners in the covenant community to exalt Your grace, to exalt Your mercy, to to edify and build up weak, sinning Christians who need grace daily. You've called us together as a body, as a family, so that we would exalt you in this world as we reflect the attributes that you have given to us in grace, as we reach out carefully, considering the weak among us, as we repent of our own sins daily, recognizing our need of continued grace and washing in the word. As we gather and we rejoice in word and song, God, I pray that you would, you would use that in our lives to reflect the glory of Jesus in the world. We come here this morning to worship you and to exalt you, Jesus. And as we do that, we pray that it moves our hearts and our feet to put aside sin so that the world would see the glorious grace of our Savior as it's washing us and changing us and making us into the people of God. Pray that you would be exalted today in Christ's name. Amen.